Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh yeah! A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hey everybody, how are you doing today? Mate Steve Khan here and you are tuning in to another episode of FinTech Fridays. Today I have an absolutely incredible guest. He is a veteran in the industry. He's been in the industry for over 30 years. We have Paul Schulte. Paul, thank you so much for making it today. I know uh, I'm, I'm catching you in the middle uh, between flights, so thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day to sit down with me and just chat. Yeah, you're welcome. So, Paul, uh, just for the audience, could you just for a minute give us a little bit about who you are and essentially what your research firm does? So what I do is we um, look at, uh, we've been looking at financials and uh, financial institutions, banks, insurance, uh, broker dealers, investment banks for like 14 years. And then about four years ago, I wrote a book uh, about called The Revolution in Financial Technology that's coming. And we decided that this was extremely important. And so I've been really taking a, a, a big turn and, and focusing much more on the ways in which um, financial institutions are being disintermediated by the um, explosion in financial technology, especially in the Far East. So uh, could you, I guess, talk a little bit more of what your research firm does? Is there any current trends that you guys are currently focusing on? Yeah, so we work for, we, I work for sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, insurance funds. And we do two things. We, we, we work with boards of directors uh, in terms of understanding their own needs for technology, but also I look at public equity and private equity uh, activity and, uh, you know, uh, advise on, you know, what's hot, what's not, what's good, what stinks, you know, what is, you know, looks iffy, what is, you know, very interesting. And so at the moment, we just finished some work on the way in which um, Alibaba, Tencent, Amazon, and Walmart are heading into India in a very aggressive way and looking at, you know, where are the winners and losers in uh, India in the um, sort of this big battle royale for the financial activity for payments, e-commerce, lifestyle, uh, lending, and so forth in India, but also in Southeast Asia. Oh, okay. Yeah. So kind of like how Walmart recently acquired Flipkart to start making moves in the industry, right? That's right. So looking at the strategies of Walmart, and Amazon and Alibaba really are the three big players against each other. And they're all doing slightly different things, but they're um, going down a course you know, very, very rapidly. And I think, once again, um, catching the banks by surprise. Why do, you th- why do you think that is? Is it, is it because of, because you were previously, you did work with the institutions, right? You have a very extensive background of being part of that world. Why do you think uh, they're going to beat banks to the punch? worked with you know credit suisse and ing and lehman brothers and then you know when nomura bought lehman brothers i worked with nomura as well Uh, fundamentally i think it is it's issue of shareholders the shareholders of banks expect uh and want and will not tolerate you know anything other than a dividend you know of you know somewhere between you know three and five percent and this means that the banks have to pay out 30, 40, 50% of their profits get paid out in dividends and Amazon and Alibaba pay out zero. And so you're looking at a, you know, billions of dollars in extra uh, R&D and you know, investment spend that these guys have relative to the banks. So if the banks really want to get serious about competing, they have to go to their shareholders and say, we're just not going to be able to have a payout ratio of 30, 40, 50% of profits. 
The second thing is that, you know, banks fundamentally aren't allowed to collaborate and they're not allowed to collaborate, you know, because of regulators. So it's good to be regulated because you're a sort of a cartel, you're, you're a protected cartel. But on the other hand, you miss out on the capacity to change quickly, to collaborate, to open up your ecosystem to the outside world, uh, where regulators are you know, very you know, hypersensitive about that. So banks are coming out of a period where they've been in the doghouse because of all this bad behavior 10 years ago. Uh, and so uh, the regulators are putting them on a very short leash. So these are all the reasons why the banks are having a very difficult time adjusting to these new realities. Um, and, and then it just tends to be a sense of, you know, entrenchment and legacy and, you know, history and institutional inertia that also work against you. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're just taking they're just taking advantage of it, essentially. You recently posted a video on how China is pulling ahead of the U.S. in the battle of AI. Could you explain a little bit more of your reasoning behind it? And uh, it's, it's because like when people think of AI, they, they don't. China is not the first place that really comes to their mind, right? And secondly, um, how do you see Canada's role in this battle um, being that it's, there's been a lot of buzz that Canada does have a booming AI market? Yeah, Canada does. Canada was one of the first people to do quantum computing. Uh, There's a very active, you know, great stuff going on in Toronto. Uh, I think the smart city initiatives that Toronto has are, are great. So, so yeah, I think Toronto's fantastic. Um, but the West has, you know, a lot of things against it. The West has a 50-year-old legacy system of credit cards and and sort of antiquated payments that where, where they're trying to put all these fancy apps on top of this. So this is always going to be a problem where there's regulators and attorney generals of states and and you know the FCC and the you know, Washington, D.C., you know, regulatory bodies uh, and, and, and lobbyists you know, who don't want this to happen. So, you know, I was giving a, a talk to uh, one of the, well, the, the Minneapolis you know, Fed group. And, and, you know, when I was talking about China and all the stuff that China is doing, you know, the guy stopped me and said, hey, wait a minute here. You know, we're still trying to get people to stop using paper checks. So you, you need to slow down here in terms of trying to think of what the U.S. can do to catch up to China. China is one to two generations ahead in payments, e-commerce, the integration of payments and e-commerce onto civic activity, like you know, paying tickets, fines, entertainment, travel, movies, uh, lifestyle, leisure, venture, travel. It, all of this has been integrated into one-stop shopping for the entire system. And this, is in, this also includes insurance. You know, peer-to-peer lending, money market, investing, tax, it's all, everything's online and everything's integrated and everything's in one place. And people have the choice of looking at Alibaba or, or WeChat, but Alibaba tends to have the, one of the best, you know, integrated platforms. And also this is the way in which, you know, we're seeing this go into, uh, you know, Southeast Asia now. So Alibaba is going into Paytm in India. It's going into um, Tokopedia and Lazada in Indonesia. And so Alibaba is really gluing itself into, you know, another country with a billion people and another country with 350 million people. And so you're looking at, you know, having a pretty good chunk of the world, you know, covered in, you know, you know, uh, India, Southeast Asia and China. The U.S. hasn't done any of this. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to touch on next. Like, how do you see the Western world kind of adapting? Right. Would it be like working with regulators? Would it be working with lobbyists and lawmakers and everything? Like, would, would it be more of like a handholding situation? No, no, I don't think that's the case. We, we should have expected that. But I think um, Amazon's done something that's really unique and, and brilliant. They just said, we're just going to go outside the U.S. and we're going to start and do all this in a, this country called India. 
And so Amazon has been laying out billions of dollars in very aggressive and really impressive um, expansion, uh, both in terms of indigenous internal organic R&D and, and uh, implementation of all different kinds of um, structures for uh, services for Amazon customers, but also making a lot of acquisitions in the last you know, 18, 24 months. So from a standing start two years ago where Amazon was nowhere and was being highly criticized for being, you know, Amazon should be the biggest bank in the world. Two years ago, it was nowhere. Two years later in India, it has a, uh, I compared the Amazon offerings to the standard chartered India offerings. And quite frankly, standard Amazon has everything that standard chartered can offer and more uh, in only basically 18 months. And so from a standing start, you know, standard charter can't hold a candle to what the offerings of Amazon are. I believe Amazon has very aggressive ambitions to export that to many other emerging markets and potentially export that back into the U.S. This is what I'm thinking. You did recently write an article. The article is titled, Fintech is emerging with the Internet of Things and AI to challenge banks, how entrenched interests can prepare. Banks are not only, Western world banks and institutions are not only losing opportunity in the in expanding markets like China and in Indonesia and India, like you've mentioned. How unprepared are they in terms of AI? Like we're hearing institutions um, starting to earmark for crypto and blockchain. How unprepared are they for this whole AI revolution? Well, I think I think it's getting a little bit better. Um, you know, I, I believe HSBC has at least a dozen uh, and could be up to twenty uh, blockchain initiatives currently. I think the one bank who gets it, you know, better than anybody else is Goldman Sachs. I think um, you know Citibank and J.P. Morgan are pretty much rushing ahead. I think the, the European banks just don't have the um, capital and the spending power to be able to engage in this right now. And so banks like Deutsche Bank are barely standing on two feet. And so they're being knocked out of the game. And then you have, you know, some of the other banks that just aren't, aren't where they need to be, Barclays. And so and especially some of the regional banks are just not in a position to be able to spend. You have to spend a lot of money on this stuff. And if you just want to do nickel and diming, um, you're going to get left behind. Hmm. Do, you, do you think it's more of like a, is it because more of like a legacy thing that they're not nickeling and diming in or is it they don't really believe the hype? What's your take on that? Well, you know, uh, I was reading this book, chapter seven of the, called The Innovator's Dilemma. It's the Christensen book. And, and in chapter seven, it talks all about how, how the corporates of the 70s, 60s and 70s in America were like these mighty engines of you know innovation and uh you know technological you know growth and uh, top line growth and 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 they just stopped doing that and he was talking about corporates and then I, when i read that article i was so struck because this is absolutely applies to banks and, and so there's just an institutional inertia they're, they're, when, when fewer positions are available, people toady and they just become yes men because there's fewer uh, promotions available. So they shut their mouths and they don't, they don't, and, and they don't dare innovate because if they make a mistake, they get fired because there's, there's always an excuse to you know, fire people and try to reduce costs. And so when you go down that rabbit hole of trying to reduce costs as your number one goal rather than uh, improve innovation, you're, you're dead. And I think a lot of banks um, are um, you know, going down this road. So, 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 so this is the problem, right? Where you have a terrible return on capital, you have shareholders demanding, you know, a very high dividend, and you just don't have a lot of money left over in absolute dollar terms for dollar spend against Alibaba, which has like eight billion dollars to spend. Amazon is spending in India alone is spending five billion dollars, 
And, and so wow. you're looking at a, a tremendous capacity for spend um, in uh, a lot of different areas. Plus, Amazon is also moving into uh, you know farm-to-market food distribution as well. So when they start to get all these different businesses, you, you get a, a tremendous synergy of business, of agricultural, financial, lifestyle, and you know civic activity together, which gives you unbeatable combination. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially it's a very much uh, evolve or die mentality when it comes to comparatively to banks and to Amazon and Alibaba and all the other companies like that, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it, and that's life. That we all, and we all have to do that. Even as adults in our 30s and 40s, we have to keep on learning. If we don't keep on learning, we're, we're in real trouble. I think the times of getting a four-year degree and, or getting an MBA, those times are over, right? It, it, there's a constant need for learning. And it's painful. And I, I say to people, I have two jobs. I have my old job, which is looking at financials, and I have another job which is learning to understand financial technology, which has been exhausting, but, it, and, but also very stimulating and, and exciting and interesting. I, I totally agree. That's kind of funny because I came back from writing my accounting <laughs> exam. So it's kind of hilarious that uh, we talked about schooling. You're probably a little bit more closer to understanding AI and seeing its evolution. Other than just in the banking space, where else do you see it just um, making a massive impact? Well, in, in the area of blockchain, blockchain is all about digitizing assets and um, you know, only a very tiny portion, less than 1% of the physical assets in the world are digitized. And so, so what we have is a world where when you digitize assets, you do three things. You, you turn it into a uh, provenance, right? And, and then that's the whole foundation of auctions, auctions, auction houses, whatever they are, Christie's, Sotheby's, ba- banks guarantee that this thing is is true and real and is owned by x and is being sold to y that's what blockchain does for physical assets number two it's a sense of collateral collateral is where what you use to you know create a loan and then number three and most important of all one of the 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 greatest things that we can digitize and one of the greatest values we have is that our parents spent you know between five hundred thousand and one million dollars to get us to become 22 year old educated people our body, uh, and this is the area of insurance. And so I think that insurance is probably the most, is gonna be disrupted more than anything else as more and more of the parts of the human, our, ourselves uh, become digitized and become uh, have a real value. So we can be given identification independent of government. We can be given provenance. We can be given um, a sense of collateral. Uh, and we, you, you, you can include one billion people who currently don't even have an identification for a bank account. Uh, you can include millions of SMEs owned by three, four, five people, you know, in, in all across the, the world who previously had to go to loan sharks to fund themselves. So the, the possibilities are endless. And of course, lastly, and most important is in terms of our lifespan, in terms of life insurance, the kinds of things that we can learn about our bodies to employ preventative medicine, to improve our life expectancy and um, to get an accurate pricing on on insurance for physical movement and for our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of insurance, I should uh, I should definitely remind my dad that I need a life insurance policy. So thank thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> You're going to live to be a hundred. Don't worry. Could we, other than the articles and research papers that you that you that you produce regularly, um, are we expecting a book anytime soon? If so, what would like what are the topics that are frequently passing through your head that you'd probably want to put on paper or digital paper in this case? 
Well, we're yeah, I'm doing another book with Professor David Lee uh, in Singapore, uh, who is one of the leading thinkers in the world on blockchain. And we're doing uh, some work on blockchain and insurance. We're doing some work on all of the you know, movement of these Chinese you know, financial technology companies uh, out into the outside world, into Southeast Asia and South Asia. We're doing uh, an update on a deep dive into what Ping An is doing. Ping An is, you know, I think one of the most innovative companies in the world. And we're also going to write a chapter on something that's very important. People need to be paying attention to right about now, which is quantum computing, because the the cybersecurity implications of quantum computing are are very, very important. And last but not least, we are looking at something that's really important. I think it's going to be the most important issue of 2019, and that is the way if the U.S. increasingly goes on its own and sort of alienates Canada and alienates you know, Europe and alienates China, is it going to go along a road of trying to bifurcate, trying to cut um, the digital world in two, to have a Qualcomm, Qualcomm, Amazon, Google, Apple world, and a Huawei Amazon, Tencent, digital world. And, and I, you know, I don't think it's possible to do that, but, but trying to do so could be quite destructive. Um, and, you know, an example I would give you is that Microsoft and Amazon have a 31% market share in, of the cloud business in China. What if China says, you know, you've invited out Huawei and you basically expelled Alibaba out of the U.S., uh, well, how come we're letting Amazon and Apple uh, sorry, Amazon and Microsoft have you know a 31% market share in the cloud business for AWS and Azure. And I think questions like this come up. And so this is going to become problematic if this thing continues down a road of increasing tension between China and the U.S. So a very important topic. I think it's the number one topic of 2019. Right. And that's, you have mentioned in the past, that's why you're seeing companies starting to enter emerging markets, right? Just in case something like that happens. They have remote offices, they have remote sites, subsidiaries, just in case those kind of things may happen, right? Yeah, pretty much. And I, I think that's right. And, and I think that, that Amazon is, is truly an international company, right? And so, so I don't know what political weight they pull in Washington, D.C., but I'm sure that, that there are opposite forces at, at play uh, in you know, Washington, D.C. to you know, counter this desire for the U.S. to isolate itself. I, I think that's a very minority opinion and is not part of the mainstream. And yet it seems to be having a, a, an immense, you know, has, has immense momentum right now. And so it's very disturbing to watch this, you know, what was played out yesterday in the U.N. And especially when you look at it from, you know, the Far East, people are aghast at why the U.S. is doesn't have a, you know, a, an America first policy. It's basically America alone policy. And I think there's no people who are more like gobsmacked by this than the Canadians. And so we've got to be very careful about where this is all going. If, if powers, some of the powers in Washington want to bifurcate the digital world, because uh, I, I think it's impossible to do that. I think we've gone down, we've gone too far down the road on this. And so I'm, I'm just wondering what this all means. I, I think the physical bifurcation of the world has already occurred, right? The manufacturing world is already, the supply chain's already been broken up, past tense. But the digital world is a very different world that, that just doesn't lend itself to being broken into. Right, because the whole, the digital world, the whole, the pull for it is just, it's the whole globalization, right? It's that everybody is on the same team. We're here to help everybody. And if 
a country is going to try to isolate itself from everybody else, then it's going to be kind of hard to work with them, right? It's kind of like work. It's like everybody kind of playing in the sandbox where we have the one kid that like we're trying to include, but like he doesn't want to come and play with us. It's kind of hard to like keep, we only, we only can ask him so much, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I have to jump on a plane. I'm going to a retreat with actually people from Monash University to discuss this very topic in terms of the future of education. Okay. And so well, this is a, an important this is an important topic for universities as well. Universities risk being sort of cut out as well if they don't change faster. And so so universities have a similar problem as the banks. That's that's interesting. Well, Paul, thank you so much again for your time. Uh, enjoy your flight, enjoy your retreat. I'm very excited uh to see what you've learned and I can't wait to have you on the show again. Uh Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to Fintech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest Fintech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment fintech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org.